0: recovery elevator episode 196
1: there was always a negative spin i could put on anything especially stuff about myself so it took a long time and a lot of practice but i really had to learn how to challenge and reframe every single thought that comes into my mind that's going to be negative and turn it into something positive because that's like a skill that anyone can develop if you develop that skill you can really change how you feel
0: Welcome to the recovery elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. We've got Dan. He's 28 years old from New York City, and he talks about his program, which at this moment is not 100% abstinence. Also in this interview, he talks about dialectical behavior therapy. Guys, I am excited to announce the recovery elevator event in Nashville is now live and open for registration on the RecoveryElevator.com website. The dates are February 22nd to the 24th. That's a Friday from 6 p.m. and you can fly out anytime on Sunday, preferably early afternoon. You can attend the whole weekend, which is Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, or you can attend just the live event on Saturday night. You're going to learn a ton of strategies and tips that will propel you forward in your goal to live a life without alcohol. But the focal point of this event is learn how to incorporate and embrace community. We cannot do this alone. You may find yourself outside your comfort zone at times, but the weekend, the seminar workshops on Saturday night, they're going to be fun. You're going to smile. You're going to laugh. And you're going to say, you know what? I can do this, and it can be a lot of fun. Space is limited for this event, so don't wait to sign up. Sign up before December 1st and get $50 off. Okay, let's get started. In fact, before I get started, you want to hear something cool. My parents listen to every single Recovery Elevator podcast episode. Molly and Perry Thank you so much for the support. I don't think I'd be behind this microphone right now if it weren't for your unconditional support. Okay, now let's get started. I wanna chat with you about an article that was sent my way about what a normal drinker thinks about his colleagues who are in recovery. This got my wheels turning. I then decided to post some questions on my personal Facebook page asking normal drinkers what they think of addiction and people who are struggling with addiction. This is a small sample size, but I'd bet the farm this represents the whole. Let's first look at this article written by Mike Kerrigan, and you can find a link to this article on the recoveryelevator.com website, episode 196 in the show notes. Thank you, Mike, again out in Hong Kong for doing such a fantastic job with the show notes. To summarize the article, the author, who rarely drinks and does not have a problem with alcohol, displays a tremendous amount of respect for people in recovery, He talks about how he sets his own goals for his life, such as fitness, diet, and faith. He talks about while his self-improvement goals are important to him, it's ultimately his free choice to pursue them. And if he doesn't achieve them, well, the earth keeps spinning. This is where his friends in recovery come in and he shares what he has learned from them. His friends who eschew alcohol in a fight to stay sober, in contrast, live that way because they have to live that way. When alcohol takes hold, their lives are no longer their own. Then they wreak havoc on those around them, even the ones they love, especially the ones they love. He goes on to say, make no mistake, it's still an act of will for them to stay sober, but it's a much larger act to reorder your life in that fashion than the healthy but non-existential goals I set for myself. What's different is the degree of two things, the self-awareness that goes into making a decision like that and the self-discipline that goes into keeping it. The author then continues with a great analogy. The sobriety decision reminds him of the tale of Odysseus at sea from Homer's Odyssey. Odysseus wants to hear the siren's enchanting song, but knew, from the goddess Circe, that doing so would drive him insane and lead him to death. So, with Circe's help, Odysseus hatched a plan. First, he filled the sailors' ears with beeswax, so they couldn't hear the beguiling voices. Next, Odysseus had these men bind him to the ship's mast, so Odysseus could hear the song without plunging into the sea into the ensuing madness. Last, Odysseus ordered his men to bind him tighter if he tried to break free from his bonds. The result, Odysseus heard the siren's ethereal voices and it didn't cost him his life. The reason, self-awareness in planning and self-discipline in execution. The author says, on good days, my friends in recovery act like Odysseus and are strong for their sailors. Other times, they themselves are the shipmates, relying on their recovery support groups to be Odysseus. But together, All of them have made a choice for true freedom and hold themselves mutually accountable through determination. By addressing their addiction honestly and head on, they are free to become their best selves. The author says, That's why I think my friends who wrestle with alcoholism have figured out something critical to living a good life. They are better men and women, not in spite of their addiction, but because of their addiction and how they've chosen to handle it. They live with extreme self-awareness and extreme self-discipline. They live in full. The author concludes by saying, It is widely known how much AA members, recovery support groups, lean on others to live a good life. It is less widely known how much they help the rest of us try to live a good life. I hope this article changes that. To the author, Mike, thank you. I love it. Great article. So is it possible that people look to us for inspiration, people in recovery, or people who are trying to get sober and stay sober? Is it possible that people say, well, if Paul can deal with alcohol, then surely I can fix my patio deck and drop a couple of LBs? The answer is yes. All of you are an inspiration to people in recovery and to people around you. So now let's cover the post I put on my personal page asking normal drinkers what they thought about addiction. Here's what I asked. Number one, what are your thoughts on addiction? Number two, what do you have to say to someone who is struggling with alcohol or addiction? And number three, do you know anyone struggling with addiction? This first response is from Rachel. What are your thoughts on addiction? It's a serious disease and needs to be treated as such. Individuals struggling with addiction along with loved ones need to know it's a chronic addiction and usually takes multiple attempts at sobriety and is an ongoing battle to recovery and requires a lifestyle change. What do you have to say to someone who is struggling with alcohol and addiction? She says you're worth it and you can recover, but ultimately it's up to you to choose. Do you know anyone struggling with addiction? Of course, so many struggle with addiction. Many are functioning addicts and only address the issue once the disease escalates and affects their daily life, relationships, health in a drastic way. Thank you, Rachel. This next one's from Joanne. What are your thoughts on addiction? Addiction has many causes. A lot of people I know who have had issues with alcohol addiction have used it as a way to cope with their issues or stress. What do you have to say to someone who is struggling with alcohol or addiction? Joanne says, It can get better, but it will take hard work and dedication. Do you know anyone struggling with addiction? Joanne says, My dad was an alcoholic, which is why I don't really drink. He quit when I was five, but I have memories of some of his drinking. My brother has been sober eight years. My husband has been sober nearly ten. Most people don't realize how many people truly struggle with alcohol. It's the rare few who can take it or leave it. Thank you, Joanne. This next response is from Luis. What are your thoughts on addiction? People need to be open and feel they can discuss it. The stigma needs to be removed. The more people discuss, the more awareness it creates. It affects people from all walks of life, regardless of how much money you have or what you do for a job. The perception is that a drug addict, alcohol addict, is a homeless, unemployed person. However, a person with an addiction could easily be a teacher, lawyer, or company director. What do you have to say to someone who is struggling with addiction, Louis says? Be open. Talk to someone you trust and admit your addiction. Build up a support network of family and friends who can support you through this journey. Use various tools, meetings, online groups, social media pages, etc. Take yourself away from the temptation where possible, especially in social situations. Do you know anyone who is struggling with addiction? Luis says, I won't say struggling. I would say adjusting his life and coping well. Thank you for your input, Luis. This last response is from Brian. What are your thoughts on addiction? He says, everyone is addicted to something. What do you have to say to someone who is struggling with alcohol addiction? He says, alcohol always ends in death, either from organ failure or suicide. Do you know anyone struggling with addiction? Brian says, my brother took his own life because of addiction. Brian, thank you for sharing, and I'm sorry to hear about that. Thank you, Rochelle, Joanne, Luis, and Brian, and several others who answered my questions. To summarize, everyone is rooting for us because addiction affects everyone. They want us to get better. They want to help. They make us better, and we, in turn, make them better. We all need each other. A couple episodes ago, or maybe last episode, I mentioned words that come to mind when we hear the word alcoholic. This is due to the stigma. However, in this episode, I'm hoping to convey the message that deep down, normal drinkers love us and deeply want us to succeed. They want to help. In addition, normal drinkers are proud of us. They admire our accomplishments and we give them inspiration to achieve their own goals. I hope you enjoyed this episode because I enjoyed making it. I had a lot of great private message conversations with people who responded to my Facebook post. So thank you if you helped contribute to this episode. And before we hear from Dan, let's hear from the investment app Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. Robinhood is a non intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. The app is simple and intuitive. It's got a clear design with data presented in an easy-to-digest way. Guys, I've been using this app for a couple months now, and it is super easy to use. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees, trade stocks, and keep all your profits. With the Robinhood app, you can learn by doing. Learn how to invest as you build your portfolio. Discover new stocks and track your favorite companies with a personalized news feed. Get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. And right now, Robinhood is giving my listeners of the Recovery Elevator podcast free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at elevator.robinhood.com. Again, sign up at elevator.robinhood.com. Dan, how are you? Doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Dan, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober?
1: Yeah, so I don't practice abstinence-based recovery. Uh, if I were to give a specific number of days, I would say I had a drink maybe three weeks ago, but it wasn't a bender. It wasn't anything crazy. Uh, And I would say 14 or 15 days ago, I had some marijuana butter, but that's not necessarily how I measure my recovery, and I'd love to get into that a little more later if you're interested.
0: Dan, I think that answer is something that perked a lot of ears, and I'm excited for this upcoming interview. (laughs) Yeah, I'm excited. And before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, Dan, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family? And most importantly, Dan, what do you like to do for fun?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I am based in New York City out in Brooklyn. And I run a channel called Recovery X as well as a communications company called Spooky Digital. For fun, I like to hang out with my friends who I know through uh, the martial arts gym. And I also do martial arts, mainly Muay Thai, Jiu Jitsu, MMA. And I have family. They're awesome. There you go. And what do you like to do for fun? Working out, going out in the city, uh, walking around, mindful activities, art shows,
0: things, things like that. Yeah, I was taking a couple notes. Did you mention New York City in your age? I uh, mentioned New York City, but not my age. Gotcha.
1: Can we share that? Yes, absolutely. I am 28 years old, turning 29 on Christmas.
0: Nice. There we go. And Dan, give listeners a little background about yourself with your drinking, with your substance use, perhaps describe your drinking habits. Did you ever attempt to quit? And try to give us some dates, some times when you, when you first started, the progression, things like that. I'm excited to hear your story.
1: Absolutely, uh, and thank you so much for this opportunity. I was, I've actually been really excited to tell my story, sort of through the lens of alcohol specifically. You know, that wasn't necessarily my my main thing or my only thing, but I think focusing in on that really gives me an opportunity to. I don't know look at it how it affected my life so thank you for that I started drinking I would say my first drink was when I was 10 or 11 my uh, brother was getting married and you know that was the first time that my parents were like okay you know what, have a couple drinks the other adults would would give you a glass of wine so I just went around hopping from adult to adult uh, asking for a sip here a sip there and before you knew it, I was obliterated, drunk little kid, and it was a lot of fun. You know, my my experience of that was that I got a lot of attention from the cousins. We had a great time. We played with firecrackers, which was probably dangerous. Sweet. <laughs> yeah. And I think I borrowed somebody's shoes that they had left out in the hallway at the hotel. And that was that. Woke up, oh, puked in the toilet and then woke up <laughs> the morning. Forgot that part. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Partied hard from a young age, so... That was my first experience, but what was interesting about that was that while I had a ton of fun, my parents the next day were really interested in like telling me how I needed to be careful, saying things like you're gonna end up or turn out just like your father, you know, he's got problems with alcohol, and I'm just like, what? I don't even know, where is this coming from? I didn't, nothing crazy happened. It was a, it was a fun, wild night. I was 10 or 11 years old, really small, couldn't cause any damage. So for me, that was just way out of left field and it felt like they were kind of putting me in this box of like, you're going to be an alcoholic. And I'm like, what the, like, I just, I had no idea. So, and maybe there were, there were signs, maybe they could see, maybe that's some stuff they saw led to that. I don't know. Dan, that's, but,
0: I find that incredibly interesting. Do you ever go back to that conversation and, and like pinch yourself? to like, man, I wish I, wish I listened or I wish I don't, that's, that's I don't know. That's cool. I don't, I don't think I heard this yet on this podcast where like the day after the first drink, <laughs> your parents are like foreshadowing, like, look, this is what happens. Like if you're, you know, it's partly genetic and things like that.
1: Yeah. I don't know if it was foreshadowing or a uh, self-fulfilling prophecy because I really feel like they had, they set that expectation. I think a lot of people when they first start drinking might have problems regulating. So I, I really don't know. I don't know if that maybe made me more Uh, Prone to problem drinking or not? Sure. But I certainly would. I wouldn't go back and change anything. I really I appreciate my experience and my story, and a lot of the best experience has been really hard won. So I'm grateful for that.
0: Yeah. No. And and pick up where you left off.
1: So, let's see. After that, that was kind of in my head, and I would still drink, and I would, you know, steal my dad's prescription medicine sometimes. And would just do it alone at home. I'm, you know, at this point, 10 to 13, like sort of high school, pre high school. And this would have been in eighth grade. So, got kicked out of school. I had behavior problems from a young age, getting in fights with other kids. I mean, talking all the way back to kindergarten. Started a school riot between the first graders and the second graders. (laughs) It was just like nice job, Dan (laughs) Yeah, so just always uh, I kind of looked up to the troublemakers and for me looking back I kind of feel like that was my way of getting attention and I know it's kind of cliche But I guess it's cliche because it's true, you know, I had a big family. I had two brothers two sisters and for anyone that has a big family, you know that it's amazing, and it also feels like you grew up in a war zone, because you're fighting over resources, you're fighting over mm-hmm. attention from mom and dad, and uh, it can just be a little bit hectic sometimes. So you have to really figure out strategies that work for you, and that's what worked for me.
0: Mm-hmm. Have you heard of the band Rage Against the Machine? Yeah. <laughs> that's the first thing that popped in my mind when you said you got the first graders revolting and the second graders. Oh, sorry. Stuff like that. Nice. <laughs> yeah, anyways, keep going, sorry.
1: Yeah, so I got kicked out of eighth grade for, I think, stealing money from another kid. And I got sent to a private boarding school, got kicked out of there for fighting. And from there, it was just a slew of private schools and work camps, sort of behavioral modification programs, things like that. I lived in like a a shack in the middle of the woods in North Carolina for like a year. That was rough but also I, don't, I look back on all this stuff and it was really difficult. That was a hard time in my life because I really felt abandoned by my family. And I don't know, it's like why do I have to go live in a shack in the woods and you know, do manual labor all day while my brother gets to go be normal. But
0: yeah, you know, I, I would think the same yeah. thing.
1: Yeah. But at the same time, my brother was his strategy was just be normal and like not normal, but uh, sort of be on an even keel and be sociable and get his homework done. So his strategy was just to be the the straight edge kid mm-hmm. and my strategy ended up getting me where I got. So you get the results that you you know put the work in for for, for sure. sure.
0: And and Dan can you can you walk us to a point where you first start realizing that alcohol or another substance you might be using that to kind of soothe, to blanket some of these these other symptoms, the, the why, things like that?
1: Yeah, so my plan uh with all these private schools was just to keep getting kicked out until my parents were out of options and I had to go to public school. Eventually that happened. I was happy about that because I just wanted to be a normal kid, living at home again. And in high school was really where drinking sort of took another turn for me and really became a way to socialize and a way to feel comfortable around other people. I always had a lot of anxiety and and fear of people, so that helped a lot. And just getting together with friends On the weekends, Uh, drinking—that was an easy way for a sensitive, socially uncomfortable kid like myself to find connection with other people.
0: Yeah, I went through the same thing in high school. Alcohol was like this magical elixir that allowed me to connect, and that's 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 one of the keywords, keyword themes this whole podcast. For sure, connection, and I had difficulty connecting, and alcohol bridge that gap. I love what you said there. Keep going. Absolutely. So I'll fast
1: forward a little bit just in the sake of time. I ended up getting arrested for another fight and got sent to a rehab, my first rehab out in Los Angeles. And that was my first uh, introduction to sort of sober lifestyle. I'd been to AA meetings with my dad before when I was 13 or 14 Uh, just because he made me and I don't know if you've ever been to I'm sure you've been to meetings out in the sticks right it can just be as for a kid these aren't people that you really see having a ton of fun they're not the people you want to be like I'm talking like you know 60 year old fishermen and Mm -hmm. me it was just a weird uh, experience so Dan quick
0: question is your dad still drink I think he drinks
1: sometimes now, but he's at a really good place with it and I've never seen him so happy and we've actually been able to reconnect in the last year or so and before that we had no relationship so I'm really Yeah, so the short answer is uh sort of, but it's not affecting him anymore, which is awesome.
0: Yeah, that's good to hear. And how old were you when you went to this rehab in LA? At that point I was sixteen. Oh, okay. Gotcha.
1: Yeah. So I was was out there and that was my first experience of seeing sort of young people in recovery. The LA scene is kinda, it's a little more hip and cool, I guess, as far as like 12 step stuff goes. And that was cool, I liked liked seeing that, but also at that point in my life, I couldn't see not using drugs and alcohol and having fun. It just didn't make any sense to me how somebody could make that a lifestyle. So, I was introduced to that and stayed out there in various programs, sober living homes, halfway houses. And at that point, I would go on and off from wanting to be clean or not. So, it was really an up and down ride for the next, man, I don't even know, a lot of years. Got arrested again out there for a, a drinking related incident that turned uh, violent. And I think, you know, even though alcohol isn't my number one. Drug of choice, it's definitely been the number one drug of destruction in my life because when I use drugs, I just want to be alone, get high, shut out the world. When I use alcohol, I want to go out in the world and cause mayhem. So it's like <laughs> when I use alcohol to a certain extent, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, would you agree that alcohol is the gateway drug? Hmm,
1: that is a great question. Is alcohol the gateway drug? I think I used my dad's Ritalin first. So I think for me, I was just looking for something to get me out of my own head. Gotcha. That said, Ritalin was very accessible to me as a kid because my dad had it. So if alcohol was the only thing, and it's every alcohol is everywhere, so I would say in that sense, yeah, it could be considered a gateway drug. Sure. But
0: Yeah, just for me growing up, it was always drilled into my head that marijuana was the <laughs> gateway drug and you know I did a talk about being duped by alcohol and for me like looking back I'm like damn it it was alcohol and uh, it's just interesting cuz we see it's legal but yeah I think that's the gateway drug in in my opinion well I think alcohol is more of the solution so I'm not sure if alcohol were made illegal I'm not something
1: else might just crop up in its place I don't think I had so much a a you know problem with the alcohol so much as a problem with my thoughts and feelings and emotions and my inability to deal with distress and sort of relationships Does that make sense
0: Dan, in fact i want to unpackage that statement right there i just check. recorded a podcast episode talking about me downgrading my addiction so i first quit alcohol and i went to chewing tobacco cigarettes add meds antidepressants you get the point yeah and i'm thinking man nailed it got all of them check 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 and then wait a second i forgot the most dangerous addiction of all time is thinking,
1: <laughs> yeah, and the
0: thoughts, the negative behaviors, and if I had addressed that one first, perhaps all the other addictions simply would have toppled. So I love yes. what you said there. That is a huge value bomb. Um, talk a little bit more about that, about how thinking, and you, you said it earlier that alcohol might not have been the problem; that it was the thinking part. Talk a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my experience has been that. The drugs and alcohol have been the solution to the problem, which is thinking, um, or just that for me, uh, for a long time, I had this this internal sort of like tension, this like almost a dialogue, not really out loud, but just like I was pulled in so many different directions by what I wanted to do or what I knew I should do or what you know people had told me I should do. And that tension was just present all the time. And it was like this... Uh, I don't know, it was like this constant ache, right? And it would get to a point where it was just so built up that I had to use something to get my mind out of it. And even if that something led me to sort of disastrous consequences, at least now I can think about the disastrous consequences and the chaos in my life instead of the thoughts that were driving me you know, mad inside of my own mind. So the thinking, yeah, is a huge, huge component of of addiction and for me I really had to get really strict with how I think and what information I let into my mind, what I put out into the world. I used to be a really really toxic person. I think a lot of people can probably relate to that, just spewing negativity, self-hate. I don't know. They they say there's there's optimists and there's pessimists. I would say I was for a while I was on like the the far far end of pessimism. Just mm-hmm. everything there was always a negative spin I could put on anything, especially stuff about myself. So it took a long time and a lot of practice, but I really had to learn how to challenge and reframe every single thought that comes into my mind that's going to be negative and turn it into something positive, because that's like a skill that anyone can develop. If you develop that skill, you can really change how you feel.
0: Dan, we haven't quite... I want to pick up where we left on your story in just a moment, but I want to expand on what you're saying right now because this is huge. You're saying that you can recognize these negative thought patterns, and there's this thing called the default mode network in the unconscious part of our brain that the older we get, the more on autopilot we are. So how have you been able to recognize those negative internal thought patterns? You say you're on the far spectrum of pessimism. When were you able to almost detach from your thoughts, realizing that you're not the one saying those thoughts, you're the one hearing those thoughts and say, wait a second, maybe this isn't fully me who's saying that. And how has that changed your recovery, your outlook on life or your pessimism? That's a great
1: question. I actually don't uh, distinguish the thoughts from myself, I think it is all me, but there's parts of my brain that, you know, there's the the conscious part of my brain that's kind of the, you know, looking for opportunities and threats, but that conscious part is maybe one to 10% of the entire brain, and it thinks it's in control of the whole thing, so it gets really upset when the subconscious part starts dragging it around, because that's really where all this societal, family conditioning, uh, past experiences and trauma that 's what 's really driving us, and then the conscious brain is like oh yeah i 'm in charge it 's like it 's like a stowaway on a ship saying that it 's the captain, so
0: uh, good analogy yeah
1: <laughs> thanks. I think I heard that somewhere else, it's not mine uh, <laughs> but I think for me, I really had to realize that and then start to address I, I had to make friends with my subconscious mind and be like i 'm listening. Uh, what do you want to tell me because I think that part of the brain doesn 't have a voice it doesn 't have like a the ability to communicate in words because that 's not developed there, so for me, uh, number one, I started doing a lot of mindfulness and meditation. I have a pretty regular meditation practice that 's kind of core to my entire recovery, and from that i 'm able to Sort of discern the thoughts and see what thoughts are bubbling up out of the, the Recesses of my mind and causing me to feel things and then I can reframe consciously I can take those thoughts and I can decide how to reframe them So I can change how I feel about them and even change the thoughts over time
0: Can you go can you go into your meditation practice a little bit what it looks like how many times per week? <coughs> um, you know, how long each session you meditate? I know a lot of listeners have questions about meditation.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Uh, I, I love talking about meditation because it's been, nothing has changed my life more than that and I encourage anyone that's even a little bit interested but not sure yet, just start, just close your eyes. If you do one minute a day to start, that's one minute more than you did yesterday and then just keep trying to increase it from there. My practice, I learned from a guy named Jeff Kober in Los Angeles. And he teaches Vedic meditation, which is an offshoot of transcendental meditation. And their practice is to say a mantra, and you do it 20 minutes a day, morning and evening, sort of to start the day with a clean slate and end the day with a clean slate. So you would sit down, you would just say the mantra in your mind. And the mantra is kind of a, I don't know why, this is probably a bad analogy, but I kinda of get the image of like a shoehorn. You know what a shoehorn is? Like you're at the shoe store, oh, yeah. you got foot on a shoe. So it kinda of helps you slip your foot into that shoe. So the mantra isn't really the the goal. You just want to say the mantra to let go of the other thoughts so you can slip into that meditative blank state. But the goal isn't necessarily to have no thoughts. The goal is only to the practice is really just to let go of the thought because then you're practicing that muscle of grabbing a thought and letting it go instead of being dragged by it to a whole series of thoughts. You know, it's sometimes you have one thought and then it pulls you off into another direction. Then you wake up a few minutes later and you've been daydreaming. So I'm sure a lot of people have had that experience.
0: Yeah. I love switching it from the goal of saying, all right, we're going to try to have no thoughts to switch the goal to say, all right, we're going to just let these, we're not going to be pulled by these thoughts. we gonna let the thoughts come. And then we're going to let the thoughts go. And that's a, yeah. big mind, that's a big shift in mindset because you can have a meditation practice like within two minutes. Be like, all right, waste of time because yeah. I've been thinking the whole time. That's not necessarily a bad thing.
1: And, oh, that's great. It means you're, you're alive.
0: <laughs> oh, totally. totally. And, and Dan, let's go back to your story for a, for a little moment here. Was there a rock bottom moment? Um, you're 28 now. Was there a rock bottom moment? Were there several rock bottom moments? What, <laughs> what gave you that the inspiration to do that final push into sobriety? I would say that
1: I fell off the cliff and hit a bunch of rock bottoms on the (laughs) way down and then probably fell off another cliff and hit a bunch more. So I had to scrape bottom uh, so many times in so many different ways. I saw this question when I was going over your your list of questions, and I, I really thought about it. If I had to pick just one that was like the absolute bottom hell of a moment, I would say that it was when I was violent in a relationship and I could no longer justify it, and I was raised different than that. I have a mom, and I have two sisters, and it has always been a value of mine that you never put a hand on a woman, and that, you know, I violated sort of a core value uh, that women should be respected and and treated, you know, really respectfully. And for me, that caused such a huge tear in my psyche. It really felt like I was just coming apart, like it was once I couldn't deny it, you know, there's times where I had been violent in relationships before, but just like punching walls, pushing or something like that, but never had I like done what I did uh, in this situation. And I tried to justify it and it was due to alcohol. You know, the alcohol was, was definitely involved and I've actually never, I've never really talked about this. So it's, it's, it's not easy, but I think it needs to be said. So that for me was the, the absolute bottom moment of all the moments, but that wasn't even enough to end it right away. It actually took another, maybe, I don't know, year or two.
0: Yeah. Thanks for sharing about that, Dan. Um, when we have that full loss of control, that like, Oh shit moment. It's scary. It's terrifying. Um, and unfortunately for myself, you know, I got a DUI in 2014 driving to work and I welcomed it I said, Oh my God, thank you so much. I'm in a suicide proof jail cell wearing like a, like a, like a, like a safety mat. And I was like, this is it. Thank you for this. But then I continued to drink after that. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for sharing and opening up with us about that. Um, let's talk about um, this abstinence based recovery. I know a lot of listeners are intrigued by this. I feel like in recovery today, in 2018, not much has changed since the inception of AA in 1935. It's, mm. it's kind of black and it's white. People think you're sober, you're not sober. Um, and, and there, but there's a huge gray area in, in recovery. Um, that's that's what I have learned going down this path, and talk to us more about your program, um, how you how you reached this program. Yeah, share 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 with share it with us. Absolutely. I guess first of all, I want to say that definitely
1: that has been the case that there is sort of this binary thinking whether you're you're either sober or you're not, and if you're not sober, you just aren't ready yet or you don't want it bad enough, which I think is complete bullshit. Uh, excuse my language. You're good to go, and- man. It's not people trying to get anyone else down. It's just misinformed thinking. And I think the more we can be inclusive and the more we can say that abstinence-based recovery isn't the only way and we can try new things, the the more people we can ultimately bring into recovery and help them improve their lives. So that's that's been one thing that has been on my mind a lot as I've been uh, you know doing the hosting on Recovery X and talking to all kinds of programs. Uh, But I have noticed a huge trend and shift in some programs that are going in more of the harm direction model, which is really, really cool.
0: So do you mean the harm reduction model? Is that what you mean by that? Yeah. What I say Uh, harm direction model, I think harm harm reduction. Yeah. Thank you. Gotcha. And Uh, can you explain to listeners a little bit more about what that is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think a lot, a big misconception about harm reduction, uh, especially I had this early on, is I thought that harm reduction meant that you could still use drugs and uh, basically that was the goal. But my understanding of it now, having practiced it in my own life, is that it's really abstinence is a goal, but we're really looking to improve our mental health and our happiness on any given day. For me, whether or not I'm abstinent is really a measure of how capable am I in this given day of dealing with the things that are coming up, because that's how I feel best. So I've been more abstinent this year uh, than not. And the goal has really been to sort of monitor my mental health
0: and well-being on any given day. And Uh, how do you do that on a daily basis? Yeah, so
1: I started doing a style of therapy called dialectical behavior therapy. And part of that is keeping a record. It's called a diary card of sort of your emotions and thoughts throughout the day. And I have sort of a modified version of a diary card that also includes other things that I'm trying to habituate, like healthy eating, working out every day. And I also take notes about things that happened that day just so I can look back. So what's really interesting about the diary card and what I really love about it. Is, you know, I think oftentimes our memories are distorted by what's going on right now, or, you know, different things come up. We don't, might just forget things or forget how they happened or, or what order they happened in. The diary card really eliminates all of that because you can look back and say, okay, I had this fight with my ex girlfriend two weeks ago. And then two days after that, I started smoking weed again. So I can see clearly that this is an issue that came up and caused me to feel this way. I tried to apply these specific skills to deescalate my emotional state and it didn't work. So I resorted to my last resort, uh, which for me is marijuana. I try to, I I don't try, I have been clean off of everything else for quite a while now. And for me marijuana is just sort of that last ditch, like I can't deal with this anymore. I've already tried to apply a bunch of skills and then over time, I'm continually working on reducing that or eliminating that. And I can see on my diary card how many days this week uh, I've smoked pot or things like that. So I can really see a clear record of what's been going on without any bias or subjective opinion on it.
0: I love the diary card because it instills this approach of compassionate curiosity. And that's where my next question is. You mentioned you drank three weeks ago. What was it like you know, when you woke up the next day, did you beat yourself up where you're like, okay, cool. Let me look at the diary card, write it down. And this is more data to make better decisions in the future. Um, because I, I see in the private groups and I went through this myself cause I was like the black and white thinking when I first got sober was like, it's sober or bust. Right. And you see yeah. it in the groups. Hey guys, I'm on day one. I feel like you know, shit. And it breaks my heart to see that because alcohol does a great job of kicking our ass they're yes. doing an even better job of kicking their own asses when they wake up on day one. Cue Absolutely. downward spiral of addiction. It's hard to get out of. So what is your feeling the next day when you wake up? You're like, okay, so I, I, had, I used some marijuana butter last night. Um, yeah, talk to us about that.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. Alcohol really can do all the beating you up for you, so you don't need to do it yourself. My goal is just to have compassion and keep it moving. I'm not gonna sit there and feel bad about it. I'm not gonna sit there and tell myself a hundred negative thoughts about how I suck and I can't have control, this and that. I'm gonna sit there and tell myself positive things. Like, all right, you messed up. Like you said, have compassion. Uh, that that compassion is so important because I think we don't give ourselves a lot of the time what we would do for like a friend. You know, we treat ourselves, if we treated a friend sometimes that we the way we treat ourselves, Nobody would want to hang out with us because it's really a lot of berating and judging and it's not a a fun thing to experience. So even though it's coming from within, it really is something that you truly experience and, and have to turn around consciously. So that that is my thought process, more or less, is just wake up like, well, okay, here's how I could have prepared better next time here's what went wrong, here's the skills that I practiced, and I really try and think about how I can prepare for that situation better, or practice better different skills next time to avoid.
0: And can you explain a little bit more about DBT therapy, what that stands for again? You mentioned a diary card as an offshoot of that, but is this like an official program, are there meetings, and how can people learn more about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So DBT, it stands for Dialectical Behavior Therapy. It was started by a woman named Marsha Linehan, And it really involves sort of mindfulness-based practice as sort of the the core practice. And the idea being if you're mindful of your thoughts, then you can see how your thoughts and your interpretations of events cause your emotions. And if you can see that and you recognize that sometimes your interpretation isn't gonna be spot on and you can look for uh, reframes, you can try and see different perspectives on the same situation, then you can change the way that you feel. The example that I like to use a lot is that if somebody uh, ahead of you shuts a door in your face, our our first reaction might be anger because we feel attacked. Like this person just disrespected me. They shut this door in my face. I feel so upset. I might attack them uh, or yell at them, whatever. But if we can see that the event, all that actually happened was the door got shut in our face. We don't know what the intent was behind that. So we to act out of the facts of the situation, And reframe it we could say okay, maybe they're in a rush. Maybe their parents are in the hospital, so they're not paying attention to anything Maybe they're just not paying attention today, but no matter what it had nothing to do with me So then we can begin to change the way that we feel because actually if we are being attacked anger is the justified emotion But you're not being attacked unless you're physically being attacked. Otherwise, there's really no no reason to feel that way
0: Yeah, there could have been a breeze in the hallway, too and, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Like I mentioned earlier, the thinking <clears throat> is the underlying issue here. In my mind, I've had so much progress with this, this last year but not allowing my mind to go to worst case scenario within the first 15 seconds. Like that's, that's just not healthy because the body doesn't realize that these worst case scenarios that we land on in our mind isn't real and our bodies will cue the fight or flight stress hormones. Yeah. And that stuff takes a while to get out of your system, cue stress, cue disease, et cetera, et cetera it's a whole feedback loop as well.
1: If your body feels stressed out, your brain is gonna take that as a signal and feel more stressed out, have more stressful thoughts, which is gonna in turn cause the body, You know, it's like a, a feedback loop that continues and continues and
0: continues, unless you break it. Exactly, I agree with that 100%. And, and Dan, earlier you mentioned that abstinence is the goal. Talk to us a little bit more about that. Definitely,
1: so abstinence is definitely, I would say one of the goals, uh, but the real measure I would say of my success or for how I'm doing is, you know, one, how am I treating other people? Am I showing up in the world and being kind and generous and helpful and not out there being a jerk to people? I think number one, that's the most important thing because we really need other people in our lives, so treat them well. I would say number two is how am I feeling? You know, am I, am I mostly happy? I think a lot of people, or I would say, certainly I, early on, I'll speak for myself, I had this idea that I needed to be happy all the time, and that if I wasn't you know, feeling this sort of elevated sense or elevated feeling, then something was wrong. But I think a good goal is just not to be pushed around by your emotions. It's okay to feel sad, it's okay to feel anxious, it's okay to feel all these different feelings that people often think of as negative, but it's really just the body's way of signaling something to you or to us, and to listen to that, And understand the signals is really a an eye-opening experience really allows you to think of the ups and downs in a different way so I really measure my success in how conscious I am and aware I am and how well I deal with difficult emotions as they come up
0: and Dan I just recorded an episode saying basically the same thing is we are going for quality over quantity if your only goal for success and this was my pitfall for a while my happiness was tied to my sobriety calculator. The higher the number went up, the more days without a drink I totally. associated that with happiness. And then what happened when I hit six months, Dan? It's like, wait a second, my happiness did not follow this linear line. What is going on? It's because I was not going. I was going for quantity over quality. So I love what yeah. you just said there, quality over quantity. And Dan, let's chat about Recovery X for a little bit. And listeners, that's how we got connected. Dan interviewed me a couple weeks ago on Recovery X. Fantastic project. Tell us more about that.
1: Absolutely. Recovery X is a project that I started with two of my friends. We are offering free recovery resources to people in need. And what that looks like is we're doing interviews with experts, thought leaders and people in recovery, talking about sort of different experiences, different modalities and really trying to get as many voices involved as possible. We also help people one-on-one to find recovery resources either in their area or, I don't know, just whatever they need, we're there to help. So uh, if anyone is looking for help, we would love to have you stop by and, and check us out.
0: Is it recoveryx.com?
1: Recoveryx.org. RecoveryX. We're also x on YouTube, Facebook, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play.
0: Gotcha. And I'm yeah. curious, how did the idea for Recoveryx come to be?
1: Yeah, so it's it's actually been sort of a, it's hard to say. So the initially, I would say that uh, my passion in life has always been communication. So as a kid, I was really bad at it, did not understand other people. So I've always wanted to understand communication and why people sort of, how they think the way they think. Flash forward through my entire experience in recovery, and then realizing that combining communication and recovery was the way that I could be of most use To people in the world. So that was sort of my personal experience in getting into that. But I will say that one of the major motivators and sort of the the final catalyst that set it off was I would often get hit up by, you know, friends, family, uh, you know, people, acquaintances for advice and uh, information about addiction recovery, because I'm pretty open with everyone in my life about it. And one of these times, a, friend, a good friend of mine needed uh, some help, and he needed to find a rehab because he was really bad. He, was, uh, he had been on Xanax for a while, and things were starting to spiral out of control. And I think, as you know, once that spiral starts, it really, really starts to escalate. So we were really worried that he was going to end up either dead or in prison for a long time. So in a rush, I went to a guy that I knew uh, who was the owner of a sober living, thought I could trust him and I asked him for a referral for a rehab got the referral sent the my friend down to South Florida and turns out that this place was not you know it was one of those shady uh, sort of scam places that you hear about on the news mm-hmm. uh, that's been really a subject uh, of debate recently and I found out that the guy that made the referral got a kickback for sending my friend there
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I felt that that program had really failed him like they, they they did not give him treatment he his experience was so bad that he didn't want to try treatment again he's given up on that idea for now i dealt a lot with his mom throughout that whole process and you know at the beginning she was like uh just the look in her eyes she wasn't even there you know she's so parents get so stressed out they get so uh, bombarded by lies from their kid who they want to believe so it's just this it's just unimaginable stress on a loved one or a parent who's trying to help their their loved one, uh, and when he was finally safe and clean for a couple of weeks and doing great she she completely transformed he completely transformed so to see it go from that and seeing what's possible to watching it you know basically disappear and go back to what it was has been you know was one of the biggest uh, sort of regrets and disappointments of my, my life and I really regret failing them. I know I couldn't have done better. I did the best I could with what I had at the time, but I vowed at that moment never to let that happen again to anyone else. So we started Recovery X. We wanted information to be free. I don't want them to wonder if they can trust the source of information. I don't want them to go on Google and go to any of the top 10 results that are all owned by the same one or two companies or a marketing agency who's going to send them to the highest bidder. I really just wanted to connect people with real, authentic, honest, trustworthy programs and let the, the honest ones uh, rise to the top. Because if you're, if you're a scam artist, that's going to come across. You really can't convey your message in the same way you can if you're really in it for the right reasons. So that was my, my motivation behind it.
0: Yeah. John Oliver from This Week Tonight, I believe that's the name of the show, did a phenomenal piece on the rehab industry a couple months yeah. ago. Did you see that? Yeah, I loved it. It's awesome. Powerful. And I was talking about, and I forget the names, but like one of the top deputies with the government, it was in charge of addiction. His son um, eventually became addicted to opioids, I believe. And he's like, okay, great. This is my job. I'm a professional. I know how to navigate this industry. When he went to navigate the industry, it, he couldn't navigate it. And his son actually died of his addiction. It's, it's sad.
1: Yeah. It's a yeah. common experience. It's really, really common. And uh, yeah, the... There's a lot of bad actors out there. So, yeah, I love the answer to
0: answer your question, uh, Dan. Again, and I had a similar thing, which was the impetus to recovery elevator. A couple months into my sobriety, I was standing behind a pine tree before going into an AA meeting. And I was looking at people getting out of cars, seeing if I knew somebody, looking in the windows at, at the meeting. And scoping it out. Yeah, scoping it out. And I just, just, I, just, I, I just stood there and I said, this is bullshit that the stigma is forcing me to tiptoe behind pine trees to, and where I, it's bullshit. And so it sounds like you hit that same moment and decided to make change. It's a nice job. And, and Dan, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions in 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Oh God. Yes. I'm ready. <laughs> we kind of addressed a couple of these earlier. So I'm going to go to the third one. What's your plan in sobriety moving forward, Dan? That's a great question. I, my plan is just focus on
1: mastery and continue to stay out of the results and hone my skills in
0: every area of my life. Stay out of the results. I love that. Focus on the action. And next question, what's your favorite resource in recovery? Resource
1: in recovery, I would say Recovery Elevator for sure. Nice. And, uh, RecoveryX.org. <laughs> That's a close set.
0: Oh, that's good in regards to sobriety. What's the best advice you've ever received, Dan? Best advice.
1: Oh man, I was thinking about this earlier. I would say, uh, have compassion for yourself and just keep showing up and doing the work and you'll get, you'll get there. And
0: what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners?
1: Love yourself, love somebody else and, uh, reach out to people when you need help because we can't do it alone.
0: And Dan, I'm going to tack on another question on that. What advice do you have to listeners who find themselves on day one today? If you're on
1: day one today, I would say I would, again, have compassion for yourself. You are fighting something that's really difficult and it's not supposed to be easy. It's not easy for anyone. And, you know, I really just encourage you to keep coming back to whatever you're trying to to do with your recovery and don't give up. You know, it, it really gets better. It just takes time, it's a skill.
0: And Dan, before we depart, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic gift line.
1: You might be an alcoholic if you go somewhere on
0: vacation and end up on probation. Yeah, that works for sure. <laughs> and Dan, thank you so much for joining you guys. It's recoveryx.org. Much appreciated, Dan. Thank you so much, Paul. Appreciate you and uh, all your visitors for hanging out today. Before I close out today, I just want to say I have a message for a guy named Matt who is 26 years old and lives in Lexington, Kentucky. That message, Matt, is you can do this and you're not alone. We are all with you. Everybody who is listening to this podcast, including myself, we are right there with you every step of the way. Please, Matt, don't forget this. You are worth it and we love you recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.